Welcome to Shield Maidens, Women of the Norse World, the podcast that celebrates the remarkable women of the Viking Age. From fierce warriors and powerful queens to wise seers and cunning goddesses, these women left an indelible mark on history. Join authors Johanna Wittenberg and K.S. Barton each month as we explore the stories, achievements, and impact of Norse women. Welcome to Shield Maidens, Women of the Norse World. This is episode eight, in which Johanna and I discuss healers and midwives in the Viking Age. I'm K.S. Barton. I'm the author of the Norse Family Trilogy, a story in which a young Viking woman, the daughter of a Jarl, and a Viking warrior are caught in a deadly blood feud between two families. It's a story of family, love, sacrifice, and betrayal. And with me is Johanna Wittenberg. Hi, Johanna. Hi, how are you doing, Kim? I'm great. I'm Johanna Wittenberg, author of the Norse Women series, which is based on the life of a Norse queen who ruled alone for 18 years at the dawn of the Viking Age. Okay, well, this is going to be a good one. Yes. So in this episode, we'll be discussing hero, heroes, healers. <laughs> well, they are <laughs> were heroes too. Healers and midwives. So we we were discussing beforehand that we had to dig to find some of these references because the poets and the men who later wrote down all these sagas and poems did not seem to be all that interested in the topic or in these women. As usual. As usual. But one thing seems to be certain is that these female healers and midwives, they use chants, songs, runes, as well as thing, you know, the your typical poultices and salves and you know, brews to, to, to drink. And we've talked about magical women in previous episodes, and there seems to be a connection between the magic of those women who were the Volar and these healing women. Yes. Especially with the, the songs that they would sing for healing. All right. Are we ready to get into it? I think so. Okay. So our first example comes from the history of St. Olaf, which is in the Heimskringla. And in this, there is a story of a warrior who was in King Olaf's retinue, and this man was injured in battle. Things were not going well in this battle at all. King Olaf was killed along with many of his men. So Tormod was, am was among these warriors, and he was struck by an arrow in the left side of his body near his heart. So he staggers off the battlefield, and he finds a hut with other wounded warriors where there were women binding their wounds. It almost reminded me of like, uh, you remember the old show MASH? Yes, <laughs> I bet you know, like it was it, like that. In a tent, you know, where there were some medical people who could, you know, like triage them and then take care of them. So in this room, there was a good fire and the healer women were heating water to wash the wounds of the wounded. So Tormod enters and he calls out to one of them, about his injury, he takes off his clothes and he sits down. So she comes over to him and in a stone kettle, it made it specific that it was a stone kettle. She cooked leeks and other grasses. So the story didn't specify what those other grasses were. I imagine they were probably something kind of bitter or maybe like, I, I don't know, maybe like green onions or something. I think because and she wanted to smell that. it, that she would want something that was odorous yes and also the stone kettle would have been soapstone because right. that 
has been, it, rather than using metal or iron kettles, they often use soapstone kettles. That's right. So once she fixed up this broth, she offered it to Torma to drink it because she wanted to, once he drank it, she could smell like if the leaks were the leaks, L-E-E-K-S, were like, if, if something, were, the leaks were leaking, <laughs> if something was leaking, she'd be able to smell it, you know, she would know the wound was deep, or maybe it perforated something. Right, that was how they knew if it had perforated a vital organ. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I've noticed that quite a bit in, in my research that that healers would use their sense of smell to determine yes, if something often. Yeah. It's really kind of neat. I wonder if people, I don't really see that as much in modern medicine. Like anyway. That's because it's an old wives tip. Because <laughs> women did it. <laughs> That's right. Tormod refuses to drink this broth, either because he knew he was going to die or maybe because it smelled horrible because a lot of these healing herbs were bitter and it might've just smelled terrible. So instead the healer takes some tongs and she heats them over the fire and she uses them to try to remove the arrowhead that was still embedded in his body. It doesn't work. The wound had swollen around the arrowhead, but it, this, this little bit at least shows us that she knew enough to sterilize right. the tongs right. and that the women were heating the water Yep. To to, to clean the wounds. So at least they knew, at least she knew to put the tongs in the fire. So then he tells her to just cut the skin away to expose the arrowhead. And then he offers her a gold arm ring that he had been given that morning by King Olaf and tells her basically she can do whatever she wants with it. Basically, it's I guess it's his payment to her. He Mm -hmm. probably still realizes he's going to die. So, yeah. But uh, before she can do anything, Tormod takes the tongs from her and he pulls out the arrowhead. Oh, that hurt. <laughs> <laughs> they had to be tough, boy. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and it, it had barbs on it. So in the oh. actual story, it said that when it came out, it was dripping oh. with pieces of his heart. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, yeah. Can you just imagine this guy sitting there holding these tongs with it? Anyway, it's pretty horrifying. He, he did die. Right after that, right after that, he died. So, yeah. But one of the things I like about this little vignette, and it's a really short little part of this longer saga, at least it, because it shows us, at least in this case, that these healing women were near the battlefield and they were there to treat the wounded. So that made me wonder, who were these women? Were they wives of the warriors? Were they specifically brought there to be nurses and they traveled with the army? Were they local women who they had come over to help? So it doesn't, it didn't say. Do you know if? um... No, I've never found it anywhere. But I do know that, you know, the Norse term for doctor or healer is lechnir. And they are often women. Uh, And there, I will tell you after a little bit later, there's a lot of women healers mentioned in the sagas, but they also mention male healers, especially on the battlefield where they may not, there may not have been any women. You know, there's some really gruesome stories about this, but in the Heimskringla, the sagas of Mag- Magnus Goda speaks of a lack of doctors, female doctors on the battlefield. And the king assigned warriors with the softest hands 
to Hmm. bind the wounds, although none of them had ever tried it before. That's what uh, what this saga mentions is uh, and, and, you know, it's some very rough healing. It's like what you just described, where they're drawing arrowheads or spears out of the men. And, you know, the the wounds didn't always heal properly. And sometimes people were left crooked you know, crippled for life from it if they even survive. But there's no specific mention that it's just that it usually is women that are mentioned as healers. And it actually reminded me too, I studied the U.S. Civil War a lot when I was in college. And it kind of made me think of that too, with the way the tents were set up. And these healer, these men would just have to go there and it would just be really horrific Oh, yeah. Cutting body parts off, blood everywhere, infections just running rampant. You know, I, I it couldn't have been any better in the in the Viking age. Oh, I'm sure it was worse. And, you yeah. know, the, pe- the people who were trying to heal, they were exhausted because they were usually overrun. Right. After a battle. So and there was also uh, Viga Glum's saga. There was a man named Thororin who was injured in a fight and his shoulder was cut in a way oh. that his lungs his lungs were exposed. Now, how that wasn't fatal, I don't know. So there was a woman named Haldora who bound his wounds and watched over him until the fight was over. And then he was laid up with his wounds for the whole summer. I mean, I can't believe he just took a one summer to recover. From yeah. That. And how did he, how he avoided infection that, well, you, you kind of explain that because they boiled water and they heated their, you know, heated their instruments. So they did know a lot about infection. Yeah. There was probably some kind of poultices that she could put on, you know, maybe she had to stitch him up. Uh, I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. And that may be one of the reasons that women were usually healers because women were skilled with needlework. Oh, good point. Good point. I wonder what their thread would have been. Well, I know sometimes they used gut you know, mm-hmm. like cat gut or cat whatever. Gut. Yeah. yeah, that was one of the things, you know, because that's more organic. I don't know. And and I can't remember if Haldor was she his wife or was she just a... I he... think she was just a woman who... Yeah. There was another story where where the wife, which we'll get to in a, in, a, in a while, but I thought this was just one of the healers on the battlefield. Yeah. So she must have really... Yeah, maybe she bound it up really tight to like... But I'm surprised. Like, lungs in. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Those I'm women. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty, it's, it's awful to think about. Yes. So in a, in a previous episode, we mentioned the adventures of the Vikings fip dog <laughs> and how he was tasked by his evil stepmother to go on a journey to find the woman Mengloth because she was the only woman he could marry. So in that episode, we talked about Svipdog's mother, the Vulva Groa, and how she chanted protective spells over him. But later in the poem, once Svipdog reaches Mangaloth's castle, and it's guarded by a Jotun named Fjolsvith, they talk for a while, and the Jotun tells Svipdog about the tree that can't be felled by fire or iron. Well, there's another interesting little tidbit about this tree, is that the its fruit is taken and laid upon a fire for women in labor. Once this is done, the baby will come and somehow this meets out the fate among men. Like somehow this helps to determine their fate. Oh, that's interesting. But it's not clear what the fruit is or how that actually works. 
<laughs> no, but it, well, there's a lot of things in the in the sagas that are like that. They just they're very obscure. You're supposed yeah. to. Know. Yeah, it's just magical fruit that can magically help with your fate, determine your fate. There you go. And a few stanzas later, in the same poem, Fjolsvith mentions that Mengloth has nine women who attend her, and that they sit on Lifaberg, which means the hill of healing. And one of the women is named Er. So some of our listeners might have heard of Er as the Norse goddess of healing. She's mentioned three times, at least that I could find, one of them being her as one of the women who sit on the hill of healing with Mengloth. Another is where I suspect her name as the goddess of healing comes from. In the prose Edda in Gilfaginning, Er is listed with some other goddesses, and she's third. She's behind Frigg and before Freya. And she's called the best doctor or the best physician or whatever. Yeah, then that's all it says. She's just listed with Frigg and Freya, and she's the best doctor. So I think that's probably where, you know, we all get the idea that she's the goddess of healing, but that that's really the only mention, that in the hill of healing. So, and then the third time she's is in, okay. <laughs> Skull Skarpamal. Ah, good job. <laughs> Only this time she's in a list of Valkyries. Now, whether this is the same heir or another deity of the same name is not clear. She's just mentioned, it's just like, you know, you know how they are in the saga. Sometimes they just mention, they just list off, here's the names of so-and-so. And she's just in that list. It doesn't give anything else about her. So there's no mention of healing there either. And that's like schooled the, one of the Norns. She's also listed as a Valkyrie. And so right. whether it's the same schooled or not, we don't know for sure. Yeah. And she's just one of those goddesses that we only have these like little tiny tantalizing bits of information about her. That's true of many of the female goddesses. Yeah. And, you know, so I, as, as a writer, I like to imagine that she had a much bigger role in the roles in, in the lives of women and especially healers, you know, like other goddesses who got left out of the stories and poems because they were told by male court poets and then written down by male priests and monks. So because the I, I just I still just believe that these women were telling their own stories about their own goddesses and it maybe was sometimes even completely separate from what the men were doing. So the men who were telling these poems just didn't even know like the richness of it. Well I think too though that there was a period of time in early Christianity, where women's magic and women's power was actively suppressed by the church. Yeah. And I think personally that many of these stories were just left out. They weren't written down. They weren't recorded. Um, they were just suppressed uh, yeah. by, by the church. And that's why we don't have them because they were never written, written down. Yeah. That's true. Like with, Queen Osa, who's my main character, there's just a bare paragraph about her. Uh, but you know, she she reigned for 18 years. Right. She must have done a few things in her yeah. life, but none of those stories were ever written down. The and only she had thing, an impact. Yeah, yeah, she did. So I'm right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you know, and one of my it's a short story I wrote about kind of like a uh, a prequel story. And one of my main characters was a, it was kind of about how she and her husband met 
and she was a healer and she was brought in to heal him. And I did have her when she first like enters the tent before she touches him or does anything. I have her sing a song to air before she even works on her. Yeah. So we can remember her. We can do that. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, in y'all's saga, there is a woman whose name is Hildegun, the healer. And she treats the wounds of her husband and her father after they've gotten into a fight. And she also gives them a really hard time for starting the fight. (laughs) Um, I could just see her like (laughs) some mother going, what were you thinking? (laughs) Exactly. Well, there's another another saga, and I can't even remember which one it is, where uh, two, two men are starting to fight and the women throw clothes over them so they can't fight oh <laughs> that's funny to stop the fight i can't remember exactly which saga it was but it just tickled me in fact yeah. i use that in one of my books oh nice yeah i mean i can just see these women like I, and i have the whip some of the women in my story you know we're the ones who have to pick up the pieces exactly but, and you know sew up the pieces yeah <laughs> like literally sew up the pieces when you do mm-hmm. this thing so you know you're going off going oh yeah i hope i die bravely or blah 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 you know fighting and they're just like okay <laughs> that's right <laughs> and we've got to clean it up yes well there's another saga which i will not pronounce because i can't but in it a healer named groa which is a common name for a vulva and so that's a, another hint that maybe there's a connection between healers and the vulvas. She watches over the bodies of those killed in battle. And she believed, she believes that her nephew Grimm was still alive. And she goes and calls in a lechnir or doctor named Alfgerd. And when the dead are laid in the ground, Alfgerd takes Grimm away secretly. She spirits him away and heals him so that his enemies don't know that he's alive. So he recovered in secret and ultimately avenged his brother. Anyway, so here we have a healer who's watching over the bodies and a a lechnir or doctor named Alfgerd, and that's a woman's name as well. So we've got two women that are involved in the healing. I like that uh, Alfgerd's name has elf in it and then she spirits him away there's there's some magic going on there too magic probably so uh later in this same story grim is treated for another wound that's gotten it's in his foot and it's gone septic and he's treated by another woman named gefyun who she she claims to be a doctor uh she binds the foot and she leaves him alone and then he dies he dies from the septic wound now, later in this saga, Gefyun is revealed to be skilled in magic. And she's also the mistress of a man that Grimm had killed. So it's not actually mentioned, but it's implied that maybe her cure was actually the cause of his death or that she purposely let him die. Of course, on the other hand, when someone's wound goes septic, especially in the Viking age, they didn't have antibiotics. So it might have been a done deal when she even saw him. But all yeah. those things are not mentioned, as so many things are not mentioned in the sagas. You know, it's just left to us to infer. I mean, even now, a septic wound can 
kill yeah. someone. Yeah. <laughs> Even yes, with modern yes. medicine, it's right. it's pretty dangerous. It's pretty dangerous. Yes. So you so know, this story is interesting to me because we have Groa, Alfgaard, and Gefjun is a, is a name that sometimes mentioned with Freya. You know, yes. it's like, so that's kind of interesting that, that these healing women have those particular names. Like, yes. Now they did name people at, after some of the goddesses, although it was more right. likely to name them after the Dees, human dead, which would be that they were maybe being named after an ancestress or something. But they did, you know, and they didn't have a lot of names, as, as you find if you're trying to find <laughs> names for your characters. Yes. That many names. They use the same name over and over, at, like Thor. Yeah. <laughs> and Grim, isn't, isn't Grim another name for Odin? Yes. Hmm. Yes. yes. Grim, uh, Grimnir. Yeah. And the word Grim means mask. Mm hmm. So. Okay, I'm going to look deeper into this story. So now it's it's yeah. piqued my interest. <laughs> I I it well and I wrote down it's Droplagersona saga. <laughs> I just I just cannot pronounce it nor do I know what it means, but I did run across that interesting story in there. Hmm. So another thing is the Norse law which we have we have laws that are pretty early on. They were written down you know, in the 11th century. So that's the very late Viking age or the shortly after Scandinavia became Christianized. So Norse law designated compensation for various types of wounds. And that included the cost of the doctor's fee to treat it. In Norway, the Frostating law gets very specific about the fines for certain types of injuries. Like if you cut off a man's nose, or his hand, and they actually say, you know, how many auras or, you know, coins this is worth. Uh, there is a section dedicated to bone money, and it mentions some of the medical treatments. If it becomes necessary to burn or cauterize, I assume, a man's wound, one aura shall be due as compensation for the pain every time it needs Ooh. to be burned. An aura shall be due every month as leech money, or you know, this is for the doctor. Uh, and it shall be necessary, if it shall be necessary to turn the man on his face, there shall be a fine for evil intent. I don't know quite what that means. <laughs> I don't think I want to. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's huh. specifically mentioned. It's not explained, but I guess they knew what it meant. Uh, so leech money is mentioned in several places in this law. That's interesting. And yeah. that they call it bone money. Bone money. Yeah. yeah. I love that. You know, it's so interesting that, you know, they had these fines and fees for, you know, things like that. Well, here's how much it's worth for your hand. But they did that even with people's lives. Yes. You know, everybody. Oh, if you killed, you know, somebody uh, and this person was worth this much and this person was worth this much, women weren't worth as much as men, blah, blah, blah. So they really had a, was this a nice, this was Norway, huh? Okay. Yeah. And um, even an unborn child was worth a certain amount of money. Oh, okay. So, yes. So like a pregnant woman was worth double. Okay. That makes sense. It's just a very pragmatic way of yeah. looking at the world like you know it was a violent time where people were dying from all kinds of things 
So I could see just being really practical, like, okay, a hand, I bet a right hand was probably worth more than a left hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if the man was right-handed. Or the if person. the man was right-handed. Yeah. Another thing, another part of the, the there's a, a, in Yal's saga, I believe it is, there's a story where a slave is killed, a slave is murdered uh, at the instigation of this man's wife. And he actually meets with the owner of the slave. And pays him the money, the worth of the slave, to keep from getting into a feud. But in reality, their wives are fighting and trying to get them into a feud. And so this escalates. It keeps escalating until they finally have to. But they try to settle it by paying the money and, you know, agreeing not to get into a feud. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, that's what they would do with the thing as well, is they yes. would often, you know, people They'd would bring their grievances and then they would, okay, well, you pay this much, oh, you know, so-and-so killed two of my cows, so you pay this much for him, or this man killed this, yeah. So it's, And it was specifically set out in these laws yeah. how much everybody was worth, each person type of person was worth. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of awful and like, well, okay, <laughs> I guess it's better than just because they were constantly killing each other. So what's, yeah, it's and better to just keep a feud going and going and going or to just finally put it to rest by some monetary compensation. Yeah. That's why it was introduced is it was a way to stop the feuding, um, you know, from escalating to the point where it was completely, completely out of out of hand and it kept going for generations sometimes. Right. Well, speaking of generations, <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about childbirth and midwives. So childbirth was a really dangerous event for a woman. And I yes. think I even say in like on my website that I think women who went into the birthing chamber were just as brave as men who went into the shield wall because your chances of dying were probably equally as grim. Yes. So, I mean, even though nobody knows for sure, of course, the mortality rate for women giving birth was pretty high in the Viking age. There was a high infant mortality rate. I've I've seen some numbers, but I've never seen, I don't know where the numbers come from. So I don't want to, to get yeah. them out, but it is pretty, it's pretty high. Like how many children die before they're even five years old. Yes. Miscarriage was also a serious risk for women. I mean, even now, even in the 21st century, 10 to 20% of pregnancies end in a miscarriage. Wow. So if that's happening now, it must've been a lot higher then because they didn't have the nutrition necessarily yes. you know if somebody was maybe pregnant during the the really lean months of yes. you know like january through like april or may it might have been really tricky for them they had to work you know th all through their pregnancies so maybe even if they were having a tricky one they probably would have still had to work so i imagine it would have been even higher back in that oh, time yeah. period yeah i was really shocked when i saw that percentage for today that yeah. 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 I had no idea. At least they had midwives. Yes. Well, I think that's because women knew they had to look out for each other. Exactly. So um, the midwives were called Bjargrigger. <laughs> I cannot pronounce that. We need to get a, a more speaking person. In here. But anyway, <laughs> they were helping women. Okay. That's what they were called. They had a title. 
and they were present at the birth. And only women were allowed in the birthing chamber. Um, This is more of women's magic that men were excluded from. And the women went through labor and delivery, apparently on their hands and knees, supported by other women. And the child was received from behind. And runes and chants were part of the birthing process. Um, There's a tale called Odrun's Tale. And Odrun, the midwife, loosened saddles and other knots in the house to help ease the childbirth. She went to the woman in labor and sang Galdr songs, beseeching Frigg and Freya and more of the gods. So that could be air. There could be other goddesses that would help. There's a lot of evidence that these Galdr songs were a very important part of the um, of the birthing process. And with the the knots and the tying up, there's also a Greek mythology tale about that. So you know the hero Hercules. Yes, from Greek mythology, his mother. He was what he was. He was a twin, and I guess when her mother was in, his mother was in labor. Hera, Zeus's wife, because Zeus had an affair with this woman, Hercules's mother. Hera, of course, was going after her, so she got the the goddess of childbirth to go sit outside of Hercules's mother's birthing chamber, cross her legs, and tie her clothes in knots. So oh. that the labor couldn't, couldn't, she couldn't give birth. Oh my goodness. So ultimately she was tricked. She was shown like a baby and said, oh yeah, she had the baby. So the goddess of childbirth un- uncrossed her legs and unknotted her clothes. And Hercules's mother was able to have the child. So. Oh that- my goodness. I didn't even know that one. That is fascinating. Yeah. The similarities. Yeah. And she, if. I can't remember exactly. I think maybe she was also chanting something. I so wouldn't be surprised to keep that from happening. But I and I'm not. But I'm not sure. Well, there's another story about Odrin, and she goes to a woman named Borgni, who's in labor, and she's in bitter pain. And the narrator asks Odrin if she could help Borgni. Borgni sits at the knees of Odrin, who sings Galdr songs, which are magical and powerful. And Borgni gives birth to twins, a boy and a girl. And even though she's weak, she says that Frigg and Freya have saved her from sorrow. Now, there's another one in the Sigdrifumal. And maybe you want to tell us about that. Oh, sure. Uh, In this one, uh, she's sometimes called Sigdrifa, but she's also maybe Brynhilde. Yep. So Brynhilde. Right. So I think she's the same person. It is. So she teaches. so Sigurd, the dragon slayer, who we've mentioned in other podcasts, he goes to her and this is similar, I think, to the way Odin or Freya or Svipdog went to the Volva and asked them questions and got these magical women to give them information. So Sigurd goes to Brynhilde and asks her about the Limrunar, the life runes to heal wounds and sickness. So these are, so, uh, so she, she, there's several stanzas where she tells him about the magic of the runes, the healing runes, the healing. And in one of the stanzas, Brunhild or Sigrifa tells Sigurd about healing runes. She says to use branch runes if you want to be a healer and cure wounds. 
She says to cut runes into the bark and wood of a tree whose branches bend to the east. It's very specific. They have to bend towards the east. I don't know why that is. There's no explanation. Do you have any theories about why it would be east? Uh, No, I don't. But I know that I think it's Tacitus talks about fruiting wood that they they uh, carve the runes into fruiting wood okay so um you know they had specific specific things that were required for the runes to work it was very specific sometimes even though it's sometimes hard to understand yes very and i think you know when you have an outside historian recording these things they may not always understand what they're doing but uh, he does describe them pretty uh pretty in, in depth so there's another stanza in that poem that for runes for childbirth she says that you must know birth runes if you want to release a child from its mother so this is pretty specific you must know these yeah. runes so that that says that uh, these midwives must have known rune, runic magic so the, she says the midwife or helping woman must write them or cut them. It, I wasn't clear whether she actually, if there's some kind of like a die she writes on her hand or if she actually has to carve the runes into her hand, her palms. I know. I read that too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, 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 it could be just tracing it with the blade of a knife, the tip yeah. of a knife. Uh, I don't know because I can't it, imagine cutting them, but, you know. Unless they had them permanently cut there. I don't know. It's very strange, but I can't quite imagine it. Yeah. In the palms and like around the joints or clasped on the joints, that that was kind of strange too. I was having a hard time imagining what that actually looked like to have runes clasped or around your joints, unless they worked up and around your fingers or something. Anyway, so that's just another example that these women knew runic magic. Well, and- Sigurd is the grandson, I think, of Volsung. Yes. So his grandfather in the Volsung saga, there's a story of his birth. So in this particular saga, there was a king named Rer, and I don't know if I'm saying that's right. It's there's a lot of R's. It's R E R I R. Rer. And he had an unnamed wife, poor woman, she was unnamed, and they were together for a long, long time, but she never became pregnant. They prayed to the gods. Odin and Freya heard their prayers. So Freya sent Ljod, the daughter of a Jotun named Hrimnir, to give Rer and his wife an apple. Ljod wore a crow's cape. The, the, transla- the translation said she did on her the gear of a crow. So Hmm. I'm picturing a cape with like- Yeah, feathers anyway. Feathers or something. And she dropped the apple into King Rer's lap. He took it home and his wife ate some of it. That seems very fairy tale-ish to me. Yes. So this wife- That's where fairy tales came from. (laughs) Right. So this wife, she grows huge with child and she stays that way for a long time. And of course, this is the Viking age. The king can't sit around forever waiting for his wife to give birth. So he goes out warring. And during his journey, he grows sick and he dies. And his poor, unfortunate wife stays pregnant for six years. <laughs> this, this sounds like many women's nightmare, you know, they'll never, 
stop being pregnant. <laughs> it, yeah. I have had one child and believe me, if it went on for six years, I, it wouldn't get that far. <laughs> <laughs> so she finally figures that she's not going to live much longer. And she orders the baby to be cut out of her. They do this. I don't know who it's not said if it's midwives or a doctor, it's not specific. And a fully grown man child comes out of her. So I guess after you've gestated for six years, you're pretty big, (laughs) (laughs) pretty big baby. Well, but what's interesting is that basically they're talking about a cesarean section. Exactly. Yeah. It's something they apparently practiced during the Viking age. Yeah. And, and earlier, because this is earlier than Viking age, this, this saga. Right. The Volson saga. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So this, this newly born man child kisses his mother before she dies. And all I could think was this poor woman staying alive through that grisly childbirth. So he's named Volsung and he becomes like a really famous warrior. And in an interesting little circle back in the story, the Jotun Hrimnir gives his daughter Lyod to Volsung as his wife. So she's the one who had delivered the apple that was the catalyst for this this woman becoming pregnant. That's all I just, all I could think about was being pregnant for six years and then having to have this baby cut out. It's just, oh, it's like torture. <laughs> exactly. And then there's another saga, Gangu Hrolf's saga, where midway into this story, Hrolf is with a group of king's men who are hunting for a stag. So in Celtic mythology, white stags are often a symbol of magic. Oh, Especially if it kind of, if it leads, it often leads men into forests or clearings in forests. Sometimes it's considered like a messenger from the gods or from the afterlife or something. And even in King Arthur, there's a story of a, of a white stag. And in the King Arthur stories, that stag can never be caught because that stag is magical. But in Hroff's saga, so they these hunters are unsuccessful. But one guy says he's going to stay and capture it. Hrolf joins him. They set off to catch the stag. And the other guy, for no reason that's specified, just stops and doesn't want to go on. I, I assume there's because he was afraid of some magic Probably. or maybe elves or something like that. Because Hrolf comes to a clearing with a house. So if a white stag leads you to a clearing in the forest with a house... And a woman comes out of that house, there's probably some magic afoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she asks him to lay her his hands on her daughter, who is in labor, and she can't give birth unless she's touched by a human. Hmm. So, so your mother's not a human then. Or their daughter's not a human. I don't know. Maybe they're elves. So yeah. he does it for her and she gives him the stag and she also gives him a gold ring, which comes in handy later for him. <laughs> but the one thing I noticed about both of these stories, about the story of Volsung and Gangu Hrolf, is that the focus is on the men in the story, not the mothers. So these mothers are just basically a means to an end. There's no mention of how awful it would have been for Volsung's mother to carry him for six years or have a C-section it romanticizes how, you know, oh, he gave her a kiss after he's delivered, not even acknowledging the excruciating pain she would have been in. In Gangu Hrolf's saga, there's no mention of the young woman who is struggling with her labor. It's about Hrolf 
and how he needs to do this to go on his adventures. So yeah, I, I, I read these and I'm like, this is what made me want to start writing about women in the Viking age is because I would read these little tidbits and I'm like, but what about her? But what, how did she feel? <laughs> well, and there is one story in one of the sagas and I can't remember which one, it might be the Lexdella saga, but these people are traveling and this woman comes, they come to a river and this woman says, well, I, I need to stay here for a little while. And so she gives birth and then she crosses the river. That's it. She's just been traveling along with everybody else. They don't mention that she's pregnant. They just say, I'm going to, she says, I'm going to stop for and rest for a little while. And she actually has a baby. So she's been in labor and she, so these women were extremely tough. Yeah. Oh yeah. Stoic and tough, but you're right. They they didn't, they just didn't even hardly mention anything about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, And, and as we talked about in the, one of the earlier uh, podcasts we did, you know, Freydis is pregnant mm. and Native Americans attack the their their camp and all the men run off and leave her behind because right. you can't keep up with them. <laughs> so, I know. <laughs> anyway. And somehow uh, yeah. she's the bad guy in, yeah, in yeah, some of exactly. those stories. Yeah. Exactly. I'd forgotten she was pregnant. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. That's why she couldn't run off. And that's so right. she stops and she rips open her top and she beats her bare breasts with a sword and scares the Indians away. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, so we don't have hardly anything in writing about the Norse or Scandinavian charms and their herbs and that sort of thing. But there is quite a bit in Anglo-Saxon and German uh, that was written down because they became Christianized much earlier and yet they coexisted with many of their, they didn't give up a lot of their pagan or magical beliefs until much later. Uh, so they, there is some written down that bear quite a resemblance to what might have been in the Scandinavian, if, if it had ever been written down. So there's uh, one thing called the Merseburg Charms. They're incantations that were written down in the early Middle Ages, 10th century. Uh, by a monk, and it was actually written in a theological manuscript that was written in the ninth century, although there remains some speculation about the dates of the charms themselves. They might have been earlier, but it's all about, it. it's, I'll read it to you. Fole and Woden, which is Odin, were riding in the woods, and the foot of Baldur's foal was sprained. So Singrut, Suna's sister, conjured it, and Freya, or Freya, Vola's sister, conjured it, and Woden conjured it as well as he could. Like bone sprain, so blood sprain, so joint sprain, bone to bone, blood to blood, joints to joint, so they may be glued. So this is a, a, a poem about Odin healing a horse's lame foot. Foal, we don't quite know who Foal is, but we we do know that, you know, Freya is Freya, and Vola must, if, if she's Vola's sister, then that must be Frey. And they're all conjuring over it or chanting over it. You know, it depends on the translation that you read. But there's, it's very likely that this also existed in Scandinavia, but it was just never written down. And there 
are skull fragments that have been found in Denmark dating to the ninth century, calling on Odin, Odin, Ulf, and Hatter to help Burr against pain and dwarf stroke. So we don't know what dwarf stroke is, but it sounds an awful lot like elf shot, which is something we know of in, you know, Anglo-Saxon England, where many of the injuries and aches and pains were caused by elven arrows in mm. your joint somewhere. Um, so there was a lot of protection against elf shot mentioned in Anglo-Saxon. So the Anglo-Saxon, as we kind of mentioned before, you know, they at one time were had the same religion and the same beliefs as the Scandinavians. By the time they moved to, on to England, they and by the Viking Age, they were Christianized. But they still had many of their pagan beliefs, and some of them got written down. It's interesting that Odin is mentioned because he was mentioned in the Volsung saga too. They, they they prayed to Odin and Freya. Yeah. Because, you know, we've discussed before, Odin is the only of the male gods to practice Sather. He's criticized by Loki for doing so. Mm-hmm. We talked about the little figurine where it looks like it's Odin, but he's wearing a dress. So that he, that these people are calling on him to for a child for healing. He's just such a enigmatic God. He is just all over the place doing a lot of different things. And he was the one who got the runes. Now, that's true too. And, and so they talk a lot about runes being used in healing and Galdr, which some say is actually chanting the runes, but no one knows for sure uh, what that is. There's also an amulet from 11th century Sweden that commands a giant to flee and a wolf to have three pangs and nine needs. It calls itself a healing charm. I mean, in other words, it says this is a healing charm, but it's written in runes. uh, The amulet is made of copper and it's about three and a half inches long and an inch and a quarter wide. And it calls on Thor, but they call him the Lord of the Jotnor which is kind of weird because the Jotuns were Thor's mortal enemies. So that's a little confusing to me, unless somewhere along the line, Thor conquers the Jotuns and we don't know about it. But anyway, this is uh, from 11th century. So it's a little bit later. Maybe the translation was off. Maybe it was like the conqueror of the Jotun or, you know, like that kind of connotation of what Lord would be. That makes more sense too. Yeah. But it's very interesting that they're they're telling a Jotun or a giant to flee and a wolf. And so these are, and it calls itself a healing charm. So these are causes of the of the ailment, the wolf and the Jotun, mm-hmm. apparently. And then there was another amulet found in Sweden, in Kvinneby. And this one is also made of copper. And it's about two inches on each side. So it's kind of like a little square and it has a small hole at one end presumably to hold a cord that so someone could wear it around their neck and this one was carved in an interesting way and i forget ah i wish i'd written it down i forget there's a term for how so one line is written right side up as we would normally read the next line is written or carved upside down and backwards that's amazing and then and it alternates that way for all the lines 
And we don't know why they don't know. Scholars don't know why they did that. If, but there's got to be a reason because it was very, you know, because they did it one one after another. So, um, no, I've I've actually read uh, in somewhere about the runes that if that there's certain things that that tell you to read them differently than they're written, so in a different mm-hmm. order. And um, there's especially like if there's two dots in a in a runic incantation that means something it means it's like a code okay so maybe this is like that too yeah it might be yeah or maybe they have to something about maybe turning the charm oh yeah back and forth could that maybe do some kind of magic i i don't know so it's it's maybe. just kind of cool like oh wow it I'm is let's start doing that just writing things <laughs> Upside down and backwards. Didn't Da Vinci do that? Like mirror writing, yes, so people kind of use this code. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and in a recent translation by Yona Lewis Jensen, the first line that the carver said they they said it was under the god of soot. Oh, so soot or ashes were commonly used in the Middle Ages for medicinal purposes. Oh, I did not know that. People would use them like in combination with herbs or plants. They would they would ground the herb or the plant or whatever they were using and they would often mix it with ash and then they would kind of soak it with something, oil or butter or wine or whatever. And then it was used as a poultice or something like that. So I thought it was interesting that he was talking about under the god of soot. But I <laughs> yeah. I don't know who that god might be. I know. But, and this one also mentions thor he's wanting he wants he's using this to keep evil from himself and he says may thor guard him with the hammer with which he strikes honor and honor must be like whatever it is yeah the jotun who's who's a has, thick, afflicting boofy his yeah he's afflicting boofy with a festering sore Ugh. <laughs> so he's calling on thor as well to make this thing go away that is interesting and thor is also mentioned in regards to fertility so in the thrimskvita the story where thor loses his hammer and he pretends he dresses up like freya to marry to pretend marry the jotun who stole his hammer so of course loki is the one who convinces him to dress up like freya and go pretend marry this jotun but at the end as part of the wedding ceremony thrym the giant the jotun he places thor's hammer across freya's in quotes <laughs> lap as a symbol of fertility so thor has a lot of roles too you know he's he's this symbol of fertility they're calling on him to help him with these afflictions the the norse people clearly loved thor yes as he's everybody's named after him there's a lot of place names yes. named after him there are thor ham- hammer amulets all over scandinavia more than any other god or goddess so they, he must have really been like the the god of the people yes that was the impression that i've always gotten and also he was not as ambiguous as some of the other you know, he was he like was Odin. very straightforward. He was a manly man. There was no, you know, the the story about Freya's the only cross-dressing one, and that's a joke. You know, right? Clearly, didn't want to do that. He doesn't dabble in magic. Right. You know, he just goes around whacking things with his hammer. Right. So, 
<laughs> he likes to eat and drink. Yeah. Yeah. He drinks. He drinks so much. They have to go get a bigger cauldron. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think he's just, and he doesn't trick people. He's the one who gets tricked actually. Right. Most yeah. of the time. So uh, I think that maybe people related to him more yeah. than they did the other gods. He's the, he's the every man. Yes. So you'd have something about the Christian era. Yes. Healing. Yes. The runic healing continued throughout Scandinavia, really up into the 19th century uh, in some of the more isolated areas. But in Reeb, which is Denmark, and in the 14th century, which, you know, is the Middle Ages, a rune of poetry was found with a staff. And a translation reads, I pray earth to guard and high heaven, the sun and Saint Mary and Lord God himself, that he grant me medicinal hands and healing tongue to heal the shivering disease when a cure is needed from back and from breast, from body and from limb, from eyes and from ears, from wherever evil can enter. A stone is called Svarter or black. It stands out in the sea. It, there lie upon it nine needs who shall neither sleep sweetly nor wake warmly until you pray this cure for which I have proclaimed in runic words, amen, and so be it. So this is a Christianized version of what was probably a very old, you know, St. Mary was probably Freya or Frigg, and Lord God was probably Odin. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, this was probably carried over into the Christian era. And nine needs, that's... Mm -hmm mentioned a lot. I don't know what the nine needs are, but it's that magic number nine again. There's many other healing runes that call on the Christian God, and they're found during the same period in Bergen, Norway, and in Upland, Norway. Uh, sometimes they're in Latin. I mean, the words are Latin, but they're carved in runic letters. So there's definitely a belief that the runes were magical in and of themselves. They were used for casual everyday things like, you know, this this bucket belongs to Sigrid, but they were also believed, as we've shown with carving them and clasping them on the joints, they were definitely considered magic in and of themselves. Mm -hmm. I like that uh, the grant me medicinal hands and healing tongue because the healing tongue implies Galder. that they're going to be, yes, a Galder. They're, they're going to be chanting or singing something Yes, to heal the shivering disease. I wonder if it's some kind of a, a plague a feverish. Yeah. A plague with a fever where they're shivering. Well, and that was during the time. Um, it was actually, uh, what was it? 1350 that the plague hit Norway and it decimated. I think it killed off like 30% of the population. And it, it actually sent Norway into the dark ages. Oh, I can imagine. Um, it, it was a power until then. So, yeah. So the, the people in the Middle Ages and the Viking Age also used a lot of healing herbs and plants. So Johanna and I are not physicians. and We are not sharing this as medical advice. This is no. just <laughs> information. Don't do this stuff unless you know what you're doing or you have a doctor's permission or something, you know, and some yeah. of this stuff is just, yes, this is just historical information. <laughs> I just, just want to get that disclaimer out of the way. Yeah. So they sometimes use spider webs for to help clot 
uh, blood clotting and to stop bleeding. Uh, they would use it like gauze. So they could get, you could gather up some spider webs and like put it on an open wound and it would help heal it. And I guess there's also some kind of like anti-inflammatory, inflammatory, uh, and components to a spider web too. I mean, I guess you wouldn't want to grab like the dirtiest spider web. You've got, <laughs> no, but, <laughs> no, but, uh, it, but it, it would be good in a pinch. Yes. I, even, I used they it. They are my, sticky, you know? Yeah. I even used it in one of my stories. Uh, they also used honey for dressing yep. wounds and for burns. It, it actually has some antibacterial and anti-inflammatory properties. It does. So I also found a document. This is from the Anglo-Saxons again, but a, a lot of what they had access to was the same things as the Vikings would have yes. had access to. They would have, you know, trading if even if they weren't not native to their countries, but also a lot of these plants, in addition to being healing, they're also poisonous or their seeds are yes. poisonous. And so, you know, they would have had to really know what they were doing or they would, could kill somebody. And also a lot of these healing plants are bitter. One of the things they used is for a headache, they would use a wormwood and vinegar poultice. Wormwood is a bitter herb and it, it can be caught toxic if it's used, if too much of it is used or if it's used for a long time. Uh, you could also take willow and oil and add ashes to make a slippery paste. <laughs> I can't. Well, you know, willow and, bark it does have uh, salicylic acid, which is what's the main component in aspirin. Yeah. yeah. So it's an anti-inflammatory. I used willow bark in one of my stories for pain. So oh, good. Oh, and then you after that, I'm sorry, after that, you add brook lime, which is a plant that lives near water and stemless carline thistle, which is a flowering plant <laughs> and red nettle. You grind it all together and then add that to the slippery paste and you bathe the head with that mixture. I mean, I don't, but I would almost rather have a headache than have that yeah, rub all over know. my head. <laughs> Depends on how bad the headache is. <laughs> for an Eric, they might've used the juice of henbane. And we've talked Ooh. about henbane as something that sorcerers has used. And it was also poisonous if used in the wrong doses. Yes. They would make it lukewarm and then drip it on the ear. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or they would take garlic and onion and goose fat, melt them together and squeeze, squeeze that mixture into the ear. Wow. Maybe the oil helped break things up. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. For a toothache, they might chew on a yarrow plant. It's oh. a plant in the daisy family. And it's very common. Yeah. And for heartburn, they would take corn cockle. And I had never heard of this before. Apparently it's an herb, but the seeds can be poisonous. They would take this, boil it in milk, and then give it to the person to drink for six days. Oh. I mean, maybe the milk helped more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for nausea, one of the things they would use was a broth of mint or carrots or ginger. And we still use mint and ginger today. And to, they do to, work. They do yeah. work for nausea. They do. Oh, and, you know, in regards to the ash and stuff, because I know like ad activated charcoal works well for nausea. And I actually take that. It's yeah. <laughs> so like some of these things we still do, like, you know, take some, you know, have some ginger tea or something for, They've for been nausea. Around for over a thousand years. Mm hmm. And then they had lots of different salves for lots of different injuries. So like a internal wound, they would mix wine, oil, comfrey, and honey. Ooh. For a small wound, they would grind to a powder, watercress, and they would boil it in butter 
and then they would smear oh. it on the wound. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. No. And then they had a lot of different salves for injuries based on what caused the injury. Um, for example, if it was caused by iron, like a sword or something, the wound needed to be a different, that it needed to be treated by a different salve than if they had been, the wound had been car caused by wood or stone. Oh. Yeah. I mean, there's just lists of things like if caused yeah. by iron, do this. And so, yeah. So a limb that's been cut off like a finger or a hand or a foot, if the marrow has come out, then it would take cooked sheep's marrow and apply oh. it to the injury, bind it and bind it up tightly overnight. Wow. I don't know if that helped to cauterize the wound or just to like keep from an infection Yeah, or to help the healing process. Cause it's not like they're putting the the limb back on. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. But it certainly seems like it would protect it. And also if you put something on an, a wound like that, that keeps it from being too dry. Yeah. It's a barrier, but it also keeps it. It's a moisturizer. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, you know, it, it, we used to, I, at least I remember when I was a kid, we used to keep things drier, but now like, you know, I, I had some, like a little thing done on my face and the dermatologist said, you know, put some like petroleum jelly on it and keep it moist, which is what we do now. But I remember for a while we didn't do that. Yeah. Anyway. So, and then they had some really complicated saps for cancer. Oh yeah. I didn't write any of them down because they were really complicated, but this actually shows that they were aware of cancer and had treatments for it. A lot of treatments different for different cancers with a lot of different ingredients. And this was for lice, which I'm sure was a problem all the time. One of them was to grind oak bark and a little wormwood oil in ale, and then you'd give it to the person to drink. That sounds disgusting. Yeah, it kind of makes your skin toxic. (laughs) Maybe. And then they had a lot of different salves for burns. Oh, yeah. And most of them involve boiling something in butter and putting it on. So I guess that's where putting butter on a wound, yeah. a burn comes from. Is, sure. It goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. And then they had specific cures for specific fevers. Ah, Which is, I mean, as I was reading through this, it was a really long document, but it just, it just reinforced like how much they actually knew and tried. Like they yeah. had... They knew it, this fever from that fever, or this wound needed to be treated differently than this wound, that it wasn't just all just do one thing and help the person. You know, they had these really complicated things for, for cancer. So they, so it's just really fascinating that they, they had this, a better understanding, I think of the body and what to do for somebody than we give them credit for. Yes, Absolutely. Well, and I know in the Icelandic Galdra book, which has a lot of spells in it, um, they talk about leeks a lot. And they also talk about an herb called Frigg's herb and another one called Baldur's brow. And we don't know what those are. Mm. We just know that they're mentioned in this. um, It's a medieval Icelandic book of spells, the Galdra book. Mm, Neat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. we had more than I thought we were going to have we on this did. topic. We really did. <laughs> it was very, it was hard to find stuff, but once we got going, we really found actually quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we did that because I feel like these women aren't given enough credit yes. for what they did. I mean, giving birth to these children and then healing people. I mean, 
Well, they kept the, they a, kept everybody alive. Yeah, yeah. And there had to be an awful lot of research and trial and error and then also passing this lore down. Mm-hmm. You know, so we talk about the vulvas uh, as having a, a retinue, uh, mm-hmm. usually women, sometimes men too, but especially women. And that's how they passed this lore along because mm-hmm. it was all verbal. It wasn't written down in, in Scandinavia until the middle ages, right. uh, whereas the Anglo-Saxon did write it down earlier um, in a different, in different forms sometimes. Yeah. Or the women who, the, the helper women, they might've been for the births, they might've been young women who were learning how to do that. Yes. So that, yeah. And I wonder if just, I often imagine that women, a lot of them just knew, took part in that and just kind of knew a lot of stuff just by, just by being there. It was a communal effort. It was. So in the next episode, we'll be discussing the winter celebration of Yule. Yes. And there are an awful lot of traditions that we observe today that came from Viking times or earlier. We have a lot in common with our ancestors. Yes. That will be for our December episode. And that'll be fun to talk about how our Viking ancestors just (laughs) celebrated their winter holidays. Yes. So many of ours are from them. Yes. Okay. It was nice talking to you. Yeah. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find Johanna at johannawittenberg.com where you'll find a free short story, a prequel to her Norse queen series. And you can find me, KS, at ksbarton.com, where you can also find a free short story from me, a prequel to my Norse family series. See you next time.